Hello and welcome to another episode of PhD Pending, the podcast for early career humanities scholars. My name is Anne Mahler and I have a PhD in English literature. Together we will deep dive into different aspects of PhD life and explore what it really means to do a PhD in the humanities. We are kicking season five off with a three-part series all about PhD productivity. And to help us learn more about PhD productivity, I have invited Jeff Sanders onto the show. We got to know him in our last two episodes, but in case you haven't had the chance to listen to those yet, let's reintroduce our guest. Jeff is a keynote speaker, productivity coach, author of The 5 a.m. Miracle, The Free Time Formula, and founder of the Rock and Productivity Academy. He's also the host of the 5 a.m. Miracle podcast, which has ranked number one in Apple Podcasts in the self-improvement and business categories, been nominated for six podcast awards and exceeded 10 million downloads. Jeff has a Bachelor of Arts degree in theater and psychology from Truman State University in Kirksville, Missouri. And he and his wife, Tessa, live in Nashville, Tennessee with their daughter, Maisie, Puck, Benny, and they have a baby girl on the way. In our first episode, Jeff and I talked about time management and how to deal with distractions. We cover topics like boundaries, to-do lists and multitasking, and what we can do when we feel overwhelmed and drowning in work. We also covered how we can most effectively deal with distractions like emails and working in a shared office space. In our second episode, we unpacked what to do with the time that we have freed up in that way and how to implement a system to do deep focus work, what Jeff coins focus blocks of time. Definitely go back and listen to these episodes if you haven't done so already. Today, in our last episode of the Introduction to PhD Productivity series, we want to talk about the benefits of saying no. One of the main struggles of doing a PhD is that you're not just focusing on your own research, but rather on a whole bouquet of different tasks, most of them not even slightly related to your researching for your own project. And I don't just mean teaching that you might do on the side, or that one journal article you're trying to finish, or that conference next month that you're planning to attend. I specifically talk about tasks that just appear as emails in your inbox. One example that I came across during my PhD was marking final exam essays for senior lecturers. So twice a year, our department had our undergrads write exams on key lectures of the course. Since all students of that year had to sit them, the lecturers ended up with 250 to 300 exam papers that needed to be marked by hand. And one way they usually deal with this massive workload is to delegate the marking to PhD students. Over the years, I had multiple requests to help with marking, mostly for a very low hourly rate. At the start of my PhD, I felt obliged to say yes to everything, hoping it would help me gain experience, network and build rapport with my department. But with time, I realized that the work didn't really add anything to my skill set, and the financial benefit compared to the hours I put in were very slim to none. If anything, it took away 
valuable time for my own research and pushed me further away from my goal to finish my PhD within three years. Once I had realized that and the next exam period came around, I ended up saying no to another round of marking. I sent the email and was terrified about the repercussions. I was nervously refreshing my email inbox and waiting for a terrible reaction. And it never came. Instead, I just got a short reply saying, yep, that's fine, thanks. And that was it. That experience made me so much more confident to say no. And because, at least in our department, it's almost part of the culture amongst PhD students to basically say yes to everything because we are at the bottom of the academic food chain, this last installment of our introduction to PhD productivity series is all about saying no. And I would like to pivot again to our last part, which is how to say no. And we <laughs> academics, we and I think just humans in general, we struggle with saying no. I've seen it time and time again, I experienced it myself. Maybe to start us off with a question about saying yes. Tell us your experiences with blindly saying yes to stuff because you might have felt obliged to and what impact did that have on your busyness and on your other priorities? I would say in my life, maybe it's not a blind yes, but more like a naive yes. So I will say yes to something with the assumption that like, this is a one week project. And then three months later, I'm still working on it. You know, like, I don't, I don't want to get sucked into something that I, you know, I thought was one thing, but really was another, which is what it had. That's part of my kind of experience of saying yes. The other part of it is I want to say yes. I'm the kind of person who wants to be involved in things. I mean, this is, we can go back like four or five years ago. I had a series of panic attacks that I caused myself to have because I just kept saying yes to so many things. And then my schedule was just overbooked all the time. And I literally burned myself out by saying yes too much. And, and granted, these were really cool projects. I was saying yes to fun stuff, good stuff, profitable stuff, things that I want my life to be about. But you can't do everything. Right? You can only do a few things at once. And so saying yes has so many potential consequences that we have to be very selective on what we're saying yes to. And so that's where saying no becomes almost the default answer to everything. And if you flip that script and you're saying everything is a no, unless it really grabs my attention as like an absolutely like a must do, then all of a sudden your time is only spent on a few things that matter a lot to you. And that's what I'm trying to get to in my life is not a life filled with trying to do everything because it's not physically possible and exhausting, but a life that's more selective, more focused, but endlessly fulfilling because I'm doing the things that really matter to me. So that's my goal now, which wasn't the case for a long time. I was the kind of guy that just said yes constantly. So it's a, it's a skill to learn. And it's one that I still have to practice how to do that all the time because I still want to say yes. How do you go about practicing when it's helpful to say yes? <laughs> um, it's about your priorities, right? Knowing exactly what it is that you want to get out of a certain season of your life and being able to say for this next season, I want to have uh, these various things accomplished. And if I have that, the clarity around that ahead of time. So when the request comes in, you can say no. When the request comes in, you know how to back down and said, this is not going to fit with who I am and where I'm going. And when that happens, all of a sudden, you're able to say yes only to things that matter, which you need to practice that, right? We need to do this all the time. When that happens, it's, it's a lot easier over time. 
and uh, it just reminded me of uh, when I started to say no after I had said yes for a long time in my PhD and that first experience was just terrible. When is it, do you think, better to say no? And also to specify that a small bit, do we always have to justify our decision to others? No. Trick question. You don't have to justify, <laughs> but you do have to know the reason for yourself. So right. it's important to know why you're saying no. You don't have to explain your rationale to everyone, but I think it's important to be able to have what basically would be like a template of here's what I say when, and you know, say I have certain priorities that are mapped out. This request that came in, you know, doesn't currently align to those. It might in the future, but for this season of my life, I've already mapped out what I'm doing. So you're not giving someone a no and saying like, no, I hate you, or no, this is a terrible idea, right? You can be harsh if you want to, but it's not necessary. You really can just say like, I'm sorry, but like, I've already got my commitments right now. And that's it. And they can really just end there. So it's not being mean to someone. It's actually respecting your own time in a way that will adhere to the commitments you've already made to somebody else, which is actually more important. And you're essentially saying that the key to knowing when to say yes and when to say no is very much knowing your own priorities and having almost a scaffold in place of like, this is where I'm going, this is where I am right now. Um, and essentially it's like a testing system. Every time a new task pops up, you test it against that. Is that right? Essentially, yeah. You're basically saying like ahead of time, I'm making these decisions. And then when the request comes in, we will filter it through the lens of what I've already said I'm going to stick to. And, you know, you can obviously make changes as you go along and you don't have to say no to everything by default, but you can always have the opportunity to assess, am I sticking to what I said I would? Am I still in line with, you know, getting the things done that I promised I would already that matter to me before I say yes to some new project. I mean, as a good example of this, my wife was just asked to write a book with one of her colleagues at her school. And so she is now co-writing a book with her colleague, which is wonderful. But for her to get to a point of saying yes to that project took a long time because she went through the exact same process of figuring out, do I have time for this? Does this matter enough to my career? Like, is this important for me to work on? And it was a hard yes for her to actually get to because she had a lot of reasons to say no. And so it was, once she got to the yes, then it was, okay, I'm fully into this now. It's going to happen. But it took some time because she had the same philosophy that I do, which is that we don't want to just say yes because it sounds fun, because we know where that can lead to. Passion is the first step towards burnout, isn't it? Totally is. Passion's the cause for burnout, really. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, that, that's it, yeah. So from what I gather from what you're telling me is that it's always best to like pause for a minute, take a step back and assess whatever lands on your desk or in your email inbox and test it against, you know, your priorities and what's going on at the moment. And then essentially make a pro and con list. Is that is that what we are, what we're looking at, essentially? Yeah, I mean, that could work. I mean, whatever is going to help you clarify what you're into and what you're not. And if you have to write it down black and white, put it on paper and be very, you know, I have a vision board in my home office. And oftentimes I will put down like, here are the habits I care about. Here are the things that matter to me. Here's the stuff that I in this season needs to happen. And oftentimes having it physically written down, posted on the wall is that very clear reminder. This is what I'm saying yes to. This is what I'm saying no to. So 
there's no confusion about it. And in the moment, I'm not going to accidentally say yes. It's like, no, no, no. It's on the wall. I, this is what I said yes to. Let, let's do this. And maybe you can tell us a bit more about this season planning. So what I used to do was is I would map out roughly, and I'm, I'm terrible at kind of making up visions. And I'm also terrible at reflecting on stuff that I did and figure out what I need to change. But what I started doing then was look at the PhD year ahead, like... PhDs only go on for so long. I know in the States, it's a bit longer than over here. I did my PhD in three years. It's usually four. So I did it in, you know, three quarters of the time. So I would look at kind of the year ahead. What do I want to achieve? But then I split it down into like smaller chunks almost. So looking at the term and just for the fall, for the autumn first, and then for the summer. Do you have any recommendations on how to most effectively map out what you want to achieve over the next big chunk of time. I don't tend to plan ahead a ton, mostly because I'm better at focusing in the short term. However, having said that, there are obviously going to be certain, you know, based upon your industry and the work that you're doing, certain seasons where you know, like, for example, with my wife, she teaches certain types of classes in different semesters. So each semester is going to determine kind of her workload, her focus, this content area she's in. And so all of that will help to determine kind of how that season is mapped out. She's currently in her busiest season of the year. So her schedule looks very different than it will in the spring when it's a lot slower for her. And so that's the question of mapping out what do I need right now that makes the most sense? And if it's a busy season, your strategies, your focus, your kind of personal self-care habits, all of those are going to shift based around what you need for the most important objectives in this season. And then if you have a season where things are a little slower, well, then maybe you have more time to take a walk, go to the gym, take a nap in the middle of the day. Maybe that becomes your focus to recuperate and you know, rest and then be able to come back again with more energy for the next season. So it's acknowledging where you are in this season and then what the next one will look like and be able to map out what's going to be best for you now and then that transition to the next one. And I was just thinking back to kind of the entire conversation that we had and also to the the example that I explained at the start of this episode, which was um, you tend to say yes to everything as a PhD student because you feel like you're kind of at the bottom of the food chain mm. and everything is a quote-unquote career opportunity, right? Of course, yeah. Because it's so hard to get on that career ladder in, in academia. You will know that from, from your wife and um, her <laughs> struggles, I suppose. Yes. It's, it's still different in, in the States, but overall, academia is in a very precarious state at the moment. So it can be very much shit is does this help my career or will this not <laughs> help my career right or right. um it, does that do anything to my reputation if i say yes or no or is it do i let a colleague down for example so is there a way that we can deal with this guilt and with this questioning of ourselves i don't think you necessarily have to feel guilt around these things but i think it goes back to the idea of defining what is my objective here and if you know in your in this career field, these are the things that matter and you can, and you know that ahead of time, at least hopefully you have a, a sense of what actually gets someone to the place that you want to be. Right. Find someone who's far further ahead in your career and you want to mirror what they're doing, essentially say, well, they they wrote a book. I maybe I should at some point in my career I have to do all of that today, but maybe that's a good plan down the road and then be able to establish is this next thing that just popped up actually necessary or did someone just tell me that it is and i know that in my line of work there is plenty of, of people who 
will give a really good sales pitch or something, and they'll give this really good argument. This matters to you a lot. But if you really boil it down, it's like, it might be a good thing, but is it the right thing for me right now? And there's a big difference between good and great, between a thing fitting someone else versus fitting you. And so you really have to understand, like, why am I here? What am I trying to accomplish? And let's stay as focused as possible on the path that I can predetermine is most effective. Because, you know, the shortest distance between any two points is a straight line. And if you're going to go from A to B in a straight line, that's the fastest way. If you're going to zigzag around trying a thousand things, it might eventually get to your end destination. It might take a lot longer. And so we're not trying to just overwhelm ourselves and delay the process if we don't have to. And it's also, I suppose, taking ourselves out of that auto mode almost of just like that's autopilot just going 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 saying yes to everything because that's kind of the culture around us but it's really having the courage almost to like stop take a step back and see does this actually work for me right which really is the whole idea behind saying no which is you get the chance to pause and think about something right there's not a reactive yes or even a reactive no it's the reactive part should be, let me think about that. I will consider that. I will look at my calendar, look at my goals. I'll weigh my options and make a more like logical, methodical decision. And when you get to that point, then you're saying yes for the right reasons or no for the right reasons. And not just any, you don't want to ever be reactive if that's not going to be the right call. And I feel like the, the more that I get kind of deeper into my career, the more I realize that being more thoughtful is what actually produces the results that I want. And so that's what I'm always trying to get to. I love that. I love that. And I think that's a great point to wrap up the conversation. We push through a lot in these three parts. Uh, which, have, where can people find out more about your work if they want to learn more about your philosophy of productivity and everything that you do? JeffSanders.com is the website. And the 5AM Miracle podcast is probably the best place to begin to dig into the work that I'm doing. Uh, I do have a couple of books, the, the 5AM Miracle book and the free time formula. So Lots of the you know conversations here around productivity, uh, F-bots, uh, panic attacks, all those things I discuss in lots of detail in those books. If you want to really get into the nitty-gritty of productivity, uh, there's a lot there to dig into. Amazing, Jeff. It was an absolute honor to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And now that we learned all about time management, dealing with distractions, saying no, and how to make the most of deep focus time, Let's take a look at some of your questions. I asked you on our Instagram and Twitter channels what you want to know about productivity during a PhD. And we do these questions and other Q&As regularly on our socials. So make sure you follow us at PhD Penning Pod to have your say. Just as a disclaimer, I'm by no means an expert at productivity, but I'm hoping that sharing different ways of working will help us all to become the most effective at work and ultimately protect our mental health and keep us all from going crazy. The first question comes from Anna and she asks, when you're about to start a bigger task, like planning a seminar session or mapping out a new chapter, how do you get over that urge to just procrastinate because you know it'll be a lot of work? I love that question because whenever I have to start a new task that I know will take a while to complete, I really feel the procrastination anxiety. But at the same time, I know that putting it off makes it even worse. So I had to find a way to appease my anxiety and just get stuff done. And I think the thing that I was most worried about 
was that I didn't quite know how long the task would take to complete and how much effort it would be. And to help me mitigate that, I started to schedule just half an hour or one hour where I quote unquote front loaded some of the work. So what do I mean by that exactly? Let's imagine you have a seminar to plan, so two hours of face-to-face teaching. You know the subject, but don't really know how to get the students engaged, how much work the PowerPoint would be, and stuff like that. I would sit down for, let's say, 30 minutes and do some initial brainstorming, research, and start working on my teaching materials. So first, I think about what I want my students to get out of the session, Then I do a quick brainstorm of all the things that definitely need to be included. And then I do admin stuff, like creating the PowerPoint file or the Word document that accompanies it. After that, I will do some research on secondary reading, for example, or types of group work or tasks that I get the students to complete. This usually doesn't take much longer than the half hour that I mentioned, and it doesn't complete all the prep work. But even just sketching out the session, the initial brainstorm and research, and even creating all the files that I need helps me gain clarity about how much work it will take to then complete the prep work. So having this front load work time is somewhat of a low commitment start to a bigger task, and helps you ease into the bigger workload. You know what they say, getting started is the hardest part and front loading helped me personally with doing just that. The second question that I want to talk about is from Simon and he wrote, I'm okay once I'm in the workflow, but I'm struggling to get into the zone at the start of a new workday. Any tips? So one of the ways you can get into the zone we discussed in part one with Jeff and that is to have some kind of start habit to indicate to your body and brain that now is the time for some deep focus work. For me that was one of two things. So either I would sit down for a quick one minute headspace meditation at my desk to ground myself and to really focus. But I get that that's not for everyone and might not be overly practical when you're sharing an office or don't want to splurge on a meditation app. So the other way to get into the zone for me was to always put on some music or sounds. So either a cafe background noises from Coffitivity that I mentioned or a YouTube video from Focus at Will. And that indicated to my subconscious that it was work time and help me get started. Another thing that I did to help me get into the zone was to prepare the night before when they ended my workday. So for example, when I was in the process of researching or writing, I would write out exactly what the next step or the next task would be when I came back to the draft the next day. So this could be as simple as type out the quote from journal article XYZ. It's small things like that that made it easier for me to get started because when you're not wasting valuable brain space to figure out how to start and what to do next, it's way easier to get into the zone and really focus. The last question comes from Siobhan and she's in the final stages of her PhD and prepping for her Viva. She asks, 
I'm coming close to my Viva and have been struggling with motivation and working out how and what to prep. Any recommendations? Well, Siobhan, first of all, congrats on your submission and best of luck for your Viva. Prepping for a Viva is nerve-wracking because you never actually know what they will ask you. I also get that it's tough to keep the motivation up when you're so close to the finish line. So it's definitely not an easy time. If you want, go back to our episode 306, the final months of a PhD, and the Viva episodes in season 2 and season 3 to get a better idea of how we handled Viva so far here at PhD Pending. To your question though, there's definitely a couple of things that I found really helpful when preparing for my Viva. And I'd say the key thing is to create processes that work for you to help with motivation and manage the anxiety and stress that comes with Viva prep. So the first thing for me was that I didn't start doing focused work on Viva prep until about two weeks before the Viva. That's purely because I had so much other stuff on at the time and I have a bit of a goldfish memory and would have forgotten everything anyways. So about two, two and a half weeks before, I started rereading my thesis over and over again. I cannot stress enough how much that repetition of reading the whole thing front to back, front to back, helped me to really ground me in the work. I also tried to get more senses involved. So I put different colored post-its into my paper copy so that I knew where all my arguments were, where my lit reviews were and images that I had put in. Engaging with the draft in that way did the trick to help me memorize a lot of the nuances of my arguments. I tried to do that every day during the time that I knew I'd usually do my best and most focused work. So for me, that was in the mornings. But for you, of course, that might be at night or later in the day. I made that time non-negotiable, so I kept the boundaries around those two or three hours of the day very, very strict. I didn't schedule meetings and tried not to get distracted by email. Then I went over all my key theorists and brushed up on their writings as well, because I knew that if push came to shove, I wouldn't be able to remember their work that I looked at in detail like two years ago or three years ago. That was the kind of work that didn't require the full brain capacity that I dedicated to my own draft, so I'd usually do that in the afternoons. I also reread my primary text before going to bed, so I implemented that part of my Viva prep into my night routine without much effort. And just two more general recommendations. If your department is circulating a list of potential Viva questions, make sure to not base your prep work entirely on those. Because every Viva is different and I know a lot of people who weren't asked a single question from these prep lists. Instead, you might want to schedule some time in to reflect on your own research and writing process. So if you haven't done a monthly or quarterly reflection during your writing and research process, it is definitely worth spending some time to reflect in the time leading up to your Viva, either by journaling or taking voice notes on your phone, for example. 
because your Viber panel is definitely interested in the thought processes behind your work, not just the work itself. Having said all that, it's all about having a good structure in place and sticking to the boundaries that you have created to keep you focused and going. We're keeping our fingers crossed here that everything goes well and that your Viva will be a positive experience for you. And thank you very much for your question. And with these three questions, we move the discussion to Instagram and Twitter. Because now we want to hear from you. What's your experience with saying yes and no at work? And what are your productivity hacks? Let us know and join the conversation on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle on both is at phdpenningpod or write an email to phdpenningpod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening to this episode and thanks again to Jeff Sanders for chatting to us about the benefits of saying no and joining me for the other two parts as well. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the show and donate to our Buy Me A Coffee page so we can keep creating content for you. And I will see you again here in two weeks with our next episode. This episode of PhD Pending was written and produced by me, Anna Mahler. Artwork by Jerome Kelleher. You can find the show on Instagram and Twitter at phdpenningpod or write an email to phdpenningpod at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure to rate us five stars so others can find it too. You can also donate on our Buy Me A Coffee page so we can keep creating content for you. The link is in the show notes. Mm -hmm.